0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode, Malcolm Gladwell joins Washington Post Live to discuss his latest book, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation, and The Longest Night of the Second World War. Let's listen.
1: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today, it's a special pleasure to welcome back to the Washington Post, Malcolm Gladwell. It's not a big part of Malcolm's biography, but back in the 1980s, I tried to hire Malcolm as a writer for the Outlook section of the Post that I was editing. He went to the Post's business section instead, was a star there, left us, went on to The New Yorker and a series of bestsellers that's extraordinary. Malcolm, welcome back. Thank you, David. It's a real pleasure. So let's talk about your new book, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation, and the Longest Night of the Second World War. As a starter, break down that title for us. What was the Bomber Mafia? What was the dream? What was the temptation? And what was that longest night?
0: The Bomber Mafia were a group of pilots in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, Maxwell Airfield who had a, had, a, um, had a dream of reinventing warfare. Who thought that they could take uh, the new kinds of bombers that were being built in the late 1930s and combine them with technology that allowed them to drop bombs with precision. And they could render every other part of modern, the modern military obsolete. And so that was the, the dream in the subtitle. The temptation was when that dream proved more difficult to realize had imagine, they were tempted. They were tempted by an alternate way of bombing the enemy. And the longest night of the Second World War, one of the longest nights of the Second War, I mean, I imagine there are many long nights, but I was interested in one in particular, which was the firebombing of Tokyo on March 9th, 1945, which was uh, the kind of uh, end result of the conflict between this dream and this temptation.
1: We'll get back to the horrifying details of the Tokyo firebombing in a bit. But I wanna ask you, Malcolm, to to share with our viewers what you say at the beginning of the book about how writing this was kind of a personal obsession. And you go into detail about your life as a child, about the life of your father. Uh, Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, my father, who was um, English, grew up in Kent um, during the war. He was a small child during the war. And Kent was what they called Bomb Alley. It was the German planes that were bombers that were flying to to bomb London during the Blitz, flew over Kent. And my father, as a little boy, was instructed by my grandmother to to sleep under his bed. <laughs> as a kind of, that was the best I could come up with to protect him against the chance of a bomb dropping in her house in fact a bomb did drop in the backyard of my grandparents house um, which was just about the most exciting thing that ever happened to my father so he you know I grew up hearing these stories about the sensation what it meant like as a child for my dad to be um, in harm's way you know in the middle of the he wasn't caught up in the blitz in London, which was a very more serious matter. But, you know, he was 30 miles away from London and heard planes every night. And I just thought, I mean, as a kid, I just thought that was unbelievably exciting and um, exotic uh, thing to have happened in your childhood. I mean, I was growing up in maybe the most boring place on earth, rural southern Ontario in the 70s. (laughs) And here I had a father who, you know, had German bombers flying overhead and dropping bombs in his backyard. So that, I think that's where the seed was sown.
1: Well, that's certainly an illustration of the imprecision of, of bombing. I don't know what the Germans were trying to hit when they dropped that in your in your backyard. Uh, our former colleague at the Post, Tom Ricks, uh, writing um, uh, about your book, Uh, in the New York Times called it a kind of love song to the US Air Force, which is surprising, Tom wrote, because it's the least romantic of our armed services with leaders who focus on technology, not tradition. I found that over the years in covering the the military, the Air Force hungers for the kind of attention that ground forces got, especially during these past uh, years of Iraq and Afghanistan. Give us a sense of what you found about the Air Force culture. You talk about having met with the, the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time. Give us a sense of what today's Air Force is like.
0: Well, I will say on to, you know, to stay on the personal, they're, they're my people. So when I say that, my father was an engineer. He taught um, in the engineering department who's a mathematician by training but he was a he was a civil engineer he in fact a big chunk of the work he did in his academic life was um, to design the surfaces of airplane fuselages so they could deal with the stresses of of um going through different temperatures and different air, air pressures and um but and the air force is of course full of people like that, of it's the engineer's um, service. And there's a lovely thing that I talk about in the book, which I ran across um, uh, years ago, there was a a, a military analyst at Rand who wrote a a book about the three services and and their differences. And he has that wonderful passage where he compares the three chapels of the three services of, of service academies, and of course, the. Army Chapel at West Point is this kind of gothic, gray, granite, hulking, you know, small windows. It looks like it's been there for 500 years, overlooking the Hudson. The anyway, Navy is this kind of magnificent Italianate, um, you know, burnished brass and marble, and it's everything the Navy is, is kind of. And the, uh, the chapel at the Air Force Academy is the most extraordinary thing you've ever seen. It's the, it's, a, it's actually one of the quintessential examples of modern architecture in the United States. It's a It looks like it's from the 22nd century, whereas the armies look like it's from the 19th century. And the minute I saw, I've never been to the Air Force Academy, I looked on, when I read that passage from that book, I looked up a picture on my phone of the Air Force Academy, and I was like, oh, that's the one I wanna belong to. That's, that's where my heart lies. I don't wanna if I had to worship in one of these three chapels, I don't want the, the I don't want the, the Italianate, you know, Bozar thing in the middle of of uh Annapolis. And I just certainly don't want the gray, brooding monolith in West Point. I want the Air Force one. That's cool. So my heart is with the air. I mean, I have I when I read Tom that comment by Tom Rex, I was like, he's absolutely right. I mean I I fell in love with the Air Force when I was doing this book.
1: So you talked, to Malcolm, to well, a lot of Air Force officers, senior leadership in Washington, and pilots at the uh, airhouse, as it's called. So I have a w- weird question, but it's of the moment. Did any of the pilots talk to you about UFOs, or did you ask them? This is something no. we're all now suddenly extremely interested in, and I'm curious whether you have any special information. I
0: I was so consumed with talking about the Second World War that I didn't get it. You know, I was so consumed with the past. I didn't get to the future. If I was doing it today, total, I mean, you're kidding me. I would absolutely ask about that. I didn't, yeah.
1: And so I have to ask, what is the Malcolm Gladwell take on UFOs or UAPs as the new jargon has it? What do you think?
0: Well, you're talking to someone who believes in ghosts. So to establish a kind of baseline here, I have no difficulty whatsoever with things that are outside of our imagination. Um, So I see no reason, I mean, why wouldn't there be UFOs? I've never been under the illusion that we were alone in the world.
1: Well, I I hope there's a, a future Malcolm Gladwell book in this or or in the way we think about them. So you structure the bomber mafia around uh, two personalities and the decision to relieve the first general, uh, Brigadier General, Haywood Hansel and replace him with a second, Major General Curtis LeMay. But it's really about the two approaches to bombing, aerial bombing that that they represented. Hansel was the precision bombing guy. Let's take out the strategic targets. And LeMay uh, was the guy who said, get the job done and ended up being an area bombing or morale bombing uh, advocate. LeMay often in the history books comes down as kind of a nasty guy. um, his Cold War role. In the fifties, is part of that. He, he comes across in your book as a much more sympathetic character, um, mm-hmm. uh, interesting, I mean, you know, straightforward, uh, plain-spoken, but but an interesting guy. Uh, to just tell us a little bit about Lemay and about that debate, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 describe the two personalities better better than I could.
0: So Haywood hansel is one of the leaders of the Bomber Mafia. So he's part of this group of idealists down in Alabama who have this dream of reinventing war, of bombing with such precision that the wholesale um, killing of civilians in aerial aerial warfare would no longer be necessary. Um, So he's a kind of, and he's exactly what you would imagine for that role. He is this kind of romantic figure who's Favorite book is Don Quixote, who comes from a long line of, you know, he's an old, comes from an old Southern military family with, you know, a grandfather who fought in the, in the who was a Confederate general and a great-grandfather and, or great-great-grandfather who fought in the Revolutionary War. I mean, he's that kind of, you know, he wrote poetry. He sang show tunes to his men as he, as he brought them back from bombing missions. He was a daredevil pilot in the 30s. Um, he's a kind of, this sort of handsome, charming, dashing character that we associate with the romance of um, aviation in those years. LeMay is the opposite. LeMay is a kid from the wrong side of the tracks in Columbus who is uh, as about as ruthless and unsentimental and um, uh, uninterested in big ideas as you can get. He was a tactician, not a strategist. In fact, he's responsible for some of the most extraordinary tactical innovations in air warfare, air warfare, air warfare in the Second World War. He, he's, there are those who will say he's the greatest combat commander of the Second World War. I mean, people who say that are Air Force people who are inclined to pick one of their own for that. But um, he's really a, I mean, he is a warrior in the kind of classic sense of the word who believes that the only responsibility of, uh, of a military leader is to fight war with, um, uh, with such brutality that the war will be over as soon as possible. He felt that was your job. Go in there and do absolutely everything you can. Um, uh, observe no nicety um, in order to get the thing over as quickly as possible. So he and Hansel couldn't be more difficult, different. They're, they're, they are at opposite ends of this continuum. They don't particularly like each other, but more than that, they just represent totally different ideas about what the role of a general is in wartime. And um, you know, Hansel's trying to reform war, and uh, LeMay's trying to make it more brutal so that he can get, get it over with. And um I feel it's a very kind of it's a stark version of um a conflict that goes on in any domain, right? Between the I the idealist and the realist, the you know, the the romantic and the the unsentimental one, the the ruthless and the cautious, the moral and the amoral. I mean, I could go on. It's like that. this is why this story was such sort of catnip for me, because it was like here you have it I mean you have in these two characters everything uh, that you that the war represents, right um, and the idea that um I, mean, I will confess as, as much as I am sympathetic to LeMay, my heart is with Hansel um, and his the failure of his dream is is heartrending, you know I mean, if he had pulled off what he wanted to pull off. Quite literally, hundreds of thousands of people would have been on, their lives would have been saved. Um, And LeMay, I accept LeMay's um, decisions as necessary, but that doesn't mean I'm comfortable with them.
1: I have a a marvelous uh, scene in the book uh, in which you describe uh, photos that LeMay had at, at his residence. Um, from Germany, and then you say the photo you wish he had. Tell our viewers a little bit about each.
0: Yeah, he. so LeMay became disillusioned with the Barra Mafia very early on in the Second World War. It was when both Hansel and LeMay were stationed in Europe and Hansel had conceived of what he thought would be a death blow against the German war machine which was an attack on a series of ball bearing factories in a little town called Schweinfurt in Bavaria. And according to Hansel's theory of strategic bombing, um, that if you could take out the ball bearing factories, and that was the principal source of ball bearings for the German army, you would make it, (coughs) um, (coughs) you would make it um, all but impossible for the Germans to wage war. Because ball bearings go into every, you know, everything you, you every bit of machinery you make for an army or an air force uses ball bearings, right? Everything that has a moving part has a ball bearing in it. And Hansel says, said, let's destroy their ability to make ball bearings and they'll be helpless. And so he said, he, he planned this elaborate raid on Schweinfurt, where all the ball bearing factories were. And it was a disaster. And who was one of the key members in leading that raid was Curtis Lemay, and he witnesses the disaster of Lemay's strategy firsthand, and I think it cements his uh, conviction that what Lemay, what Hansel was doing, and the bomber mafia were doing, were pursuing a hopelessly naive notion about how to wage war. And Lemay lost many men in that fa- in that attack on Schweinfurt, and he had in I described the story of somebody. Um, long after LeMay Le had retired, a young, a junior officer, uh, was going to his house to deliver a package, and, uh, ob- and the doors opened, and he sees in the foyer, foyer to LeMay's house, uh, a large blown-up picture of uh, of the of the, sh- of the factories they bombed at Schweinfurt, what they used to call strike photos. He wanted to have a living reminder every time he entered his house of what he considered to be the most disastrous raid that he had participated in as an Air Force officer. And I thought that spoke volumes about the man, right? This is, this is the 1970s. I mean, the war has been over for 30 years. Now what is, this is a man who went on to have one of the most extraordinary careers in the U.S. Air Force um, of any one of his generation. And yet, what does he choose to put in a position of honor in his house is a picture of his greatest failure, not just his greatest failure, a picture of his adversary's greatest failure, right? It's a man-carried grudge. Like, (laughs) I mean, these characters are just like, they're fantastic.
1: And, And Malcolm, what's the photograph that you wish he had on his wall?
0: Well, he would then go on and refute the logic of the Bomber Mafia and say what we really need to be, do, be doing to our enemies is simply bombing everything we can. Instead of doing, pursuing a policy of precision bombing, let's just, in the case of the cities of Japan, he was like, let's just burn the cities down with napalm. And he launches the first of those strikes, what would be 66 strikes over the summer of 1945 against Tokyo on March 9, 1945, and burns alive about 40 or 50,000 people um, and burns down about 16 square miles of Tokyo. And it is an attack. It is one of the most horrific attacks of the war. And I wish he had a strike photo of that attack in his foyer as well. I mean, I think he should not just remember his adversary's lowest moment. He should also remember a time when he did something, may, like I said, may well have been militarily necessary, but that doesn't make it any less unspeakable. I wish that he had chosen to memorialize that moment as well.
1: Do you think, uh, Malcolm, given your conversations with, um... Air Force Chief of Staff Golfe, your research, uh, that that we now have entered the world that uh, General Hansel envisioned. We do now have precision bombing, thanks to JDAMs, uh, uh, guided missiles that can, you know, do do the impossible, can get into that pickle barrel, uh, yeah. the analogy that you that you describe. So, so, do you think that the advent of of actual precision bombing um, it opens the way for a kind of warfare in which civilians are less likely to be held at
0: ransom? I mean, potentially, although the first thing that General Goldfein would tell you is that um, precision bombing, um, as good as precision bombing is now, also makes it a lot easier to go to war, right? So, you know, we see this all the time now. Now that you can hit anyone you want, wherever they are, as long as you know their coordinates and not take out and, and, and keep collateral damage to a minimum, what's stopping you from going to war every day? Um, and there are plenty of people who have argued that, that what the future holds is a kind of continuous level of precise but low-level conflict um, because there are no, what's holding you back? You know, why wouldn't you take out a if you if you knew where, you know, all of the the the, the senior leadership of Al Qaeda or Hamas or anyone were or any, at any given moment, why wouldn't you just take them out? Right. That's the that's the kind of decision making that um, uh, that uh, possibility that faces the military commanders today. So it's a trade-off. I mean, will we? kill 50,000 people in one night any longer because we burned down an entire city, no. But, you know, I, you, you hesitate to kind of, um, uh, I hesitate to go long on the morality of, of war making. <laughs> people come up with new, new ways to commit unspeakable acts. So, um, and certainly some of the other weapons in the offing, um, biological weapons, for example, have none of that precision capability. So maybe what we've done is we've simply replaced one method of mass destruction with another.
1: This is a a period uh, when we're talking and thinking a lot about racial justice and recently we've been focused on uh, intolerance and acts of violence against Asian Americans. Uh, uh, Our reviewer of your book in in the Washington Post Wondered why you didn't write about the kinds of of racial insensitivity, just flat-out racism that some of these commanders expressed against the Japanese. General Hansel said there was a universal feeling, in quotes, among U.S. forces that the Japanese were subhuman. Uh, General LeMay said similar things. There's not a discussion of that in the in the book. Uh, I'm curious about whether you that was a, a conscious decision you made, and what in general you think uh, in this period when we're talking and thinking about uh, racism against Asian Americans uh, is uh, worth uh, thinking about and recovering from from the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought about it and decided for a number of reasons, and maybe not in the end, good reasons. Um, not to go into it. Um, One was, there's some really, really, really wonderful, powerful books written on this very subject, one in particular, um, which I read and thought, I can't, you know, I can do a little um, mini version of this argument, but can't do justice to it in the kind of book, kind of story I'm trying to tell. I you know I have written enough about racism in some of my other books to know that it is such a kind of complicated issue that I thought that there was a risk if I dipped my toe in that water and did a you know half a chapter on it it would be I would be somehow doing an injustice to the topic. That was one notion I had um, the other thing was a more kind of um I was very conscious in, and you always get, that you must know this as well, when you're writing about an issue as complicated as Second World War in particular, um, there is really no end to the things that you can talk about. And so your primary job as a storyteller is about what you're leaving out, not what you're putting in. Um, and I was very much trying to discipline myself. I wanted to write a, a very short, manageable, popular work of history and more than that because the audiobook is so kind of it's where we began with this project was making what we thought would be a really great audiobook using all of the old tape and um in that as well i wanted something that was you know that was um of manageable size and so there are lots and lots and lots lots of things i didn't put in that if i were doing a different kind of book i probably would have um You know, I don't feel as bad about that when in cases where um, there have been really wonderful histories written on that aspect of it and people, you know, I suppose the best I can do is to encourage people to read that. I've always thought of my books that their chief function is that they are introductions to a topic, that I'm happiest if once someone has read one of my books, they go on to read more deeply in the same area. That's my role. Um, is to whet your appetite. I'm not I'm not where you become sated. So
1: let me just ask, in the couple of minutes we have remaining, uh, ask you to talk a little bit about the Malcolm Gladwell method. You've had a string of extraordinary books, uh, bestsellers, The Tipping Point, uh, Outliers, uh, you can go on and on. Tell us briefly how you decide on a subject. Your books typically have been about themes in social psychology that you find a way to ex- express uh, quickly, clearly, um, accessibly. How do you choose a topic? How do you research it? And then I got one more question for you before we go.
0: Okay. Um, I know, mean, no, it's all very idiosyncratic. I just. It seems to be whatever I'm interested in in the moment. Um, You know, I'm I'm a generalist. You know, I'm an old newspaper reporter. Um, So I very much have the ethic that I I apply myself and do some reporting. I should be able to write at least reasonably intelligently about a wide range of topics. Um, uh, Once you're free of the kind of burden of true expertise, you can write interesting things on a wide variety of topics. I am free of the burden of true expertise. <laughs> um, but mostly I'm interested, you know, um, I, I, I love the kind of um, complexities. I mean, I, I mentioned this book, for example, that I've always been drawn to obsessives. And um, that idea of the conflict between someone's, Um, deepest and most powerful motivations and the world around them is something that is of infinite interest to me. And in many of my books, I have kind of returned to that theme about what happens when you have to, when your internal self has to deal with the external world. Um, And why I'm so taken with that particular dilemma, I have no idea.
1: So... Malcolm, I'm I'm going to close with a question from uh, one of our audience members, Michael Dickens in Maryland, who asks, are there epiphanies that you've had in your writing life that shape you going forward? I'd love to know the answer to that myself.
0: Oh, I guess the the biggest thing I've found in my writing life is that um, I have discovered, not really my own, but the kind of... I've firsthand the kind of human capacity for reinvention. I'm always struck, as a writer, how different my work is today than it was ten years or twenty or thirty years ago. How I'm interested in different things, how I approach things differently, how I write in a different fashion. I mean, I I almost feel like I don't recognize my twenty-five or thirty-year-old self, which is an incredibly like fascinating and. Um, encouraging thought um, and that's kind of spilled over in my life and that I have kind of, it's changed the way I view others, I think. Um, I no longer have this attitude that people are who they, will always be who they are in the moment, you know, in the moment you you um, uh, encounter them. I now have a much healthier sense of the people's capacity to change. Um, well, that's wait, David, that's I a... go. Before I say, as the world should know that I'm an enormous fan of your thrillers. I've read every single one of them, and I am waiting impatiently for the next one. With an emphasis on impatient. Where is it? Come on, your you're, <laughs> you're, you're
1: you're you're very sweet to say that. Um, uh, this the conversation is just fascinating. We could go on happily, I I think, for another uh, thirty or fifty minutes, uh, but uh, I want to thank Mal- Malcolm Gladwell for, for joining us, for talking about his new book, The Bomber Mafia, uh, which is a, a marvelous uh, a read, an introduction to s- so many complex thoughts. Malcolm, thanks for, for joining us. Good. Thank you, David. So um, at three o'clock today, Washington Post Live will be talking to Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar and at five o'clock to actress uh, Mila Kunis, director Rodrigo Garcia and our own Eli Saslow, about uh, an extraordinary new movie. Tomorrow, I will be back with Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the IMF. So I hope you'll join us tomorrow for that. Uh, thanks for being with us on Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.